pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Damascus stone in our cloister walk means two things to me, violence and grace, malice and a second chance. This is, of course, a congregation of global educated citizens who read newspapers and books, so I feel obliged to talk for a moment about the history of violence represented by Damascus, but I'll be brief and then we'll get to the grace and the good news. Archaeologists can't confirm this, but some of them think that Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city on earth. It's a city of beautiful rivers and lush soils, and sometimes it's called the city of jasmine. But Damascus is only 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and in the Old Testament, Jerusalem in Israel and Damascus in Syria shared the unhappy distinction of being the capital cities of small nations with huge ambitions. Israel and Syria, of course, are on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean in the Levant, and they were pipsqueak countries, sandwiched in there between larger, more menacing superpowers like Egypt to the southwest and Assyria to the northeast. And so Damascus and Jerusalem were always trying to destroy each other or sometimes making alliances together to go up against these larger bully empires. So much for the Old Testament. In the New Testament, as you just heard, Damascus is the place where Paul is going to imprison disciples of Jesus when God so rudely interrupts his hostile mission. So you see what I mean when I say that Damascus has a fraught history with both Jews and and Christians. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. Since 1970, Syria has been under the thumb of the oppressive Assad regime, Father Hafez till 2000, and son Bashar since then. The Assads are Alawites, an eccentric, secretive subsect of Shiite Islam, which comprises just 12% of the Syrian population. And so secular and Sunni Syrians have long resented this stifling Alawite regime and began a rebellion against it in the Arab Spring of 2011. The chaos of that Syrian civil war created a power vacuum that the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria rushed to fill. And as you well know by now, the Islamic State is a terrorist organization so horrible that it disgusts Al-Qaeda. Now, what do you have to do to disgust Al-Qaeda, which murdered 3,000 Americans on 9-11? I was going to tell you what the Islamic State did to disgust Al-Qaeda, but I couldn't bring myself to talk about these atrocities in this holy space. Things are so bad, partly because of Damascus, that 12 million Syrians, about half the population, have been displaced. Seven million of them internally and four million to bordering nations. No one knows exactly how many have been killed, but it is probably more than 200,000. And so I just ache 
for the Syrian people, but also in a smaller way for our president and the Pentagon and our Congress because neither I nor they know quite what is best and rightest to do for the world's policemen. And I guess I just wanted to fold Damascus and Syria into our prayers this weekend and give voice to a meager hope. (laughs) Probably don't have to point this out to you, but this is not, by a long shot, the best sermon you will hear this weekend. And so I guess I just hope that President Obama had it right in his eulogy on Friday. God can take towering malice and make something healing from it because grace is amazing. So let's spend the rest of our time talking about amazing grace because Damascus means not just violence but also its ending This character, Saul, later Paul, we heard about in our scripture lessons, was raised in the city of Tarsus on the southern coast of what's now Turkey, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, the son of wealthy parents who could afford to send him away to boarding school in Jerusalem. And so Saul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a wizened old sage who was considered the best teacher of the first century. And Paul gets into the National Honor Society and Phi Beta Kappa, the whole nine yards. When he grew up, he joined a religious sect so conservative and so strict and so exclusive that its enemies scornfully labeled its adherents Pharisees, which means pure or set apart or separate or don't mess with the status quo. We like it just this way. Thank you very much. That's what Pharisee means. The law, the Torah, was what Paul loved more than anything else in all the world. And Paul would kill to maintain the sanctity of the law and demonstrated that much when he held the coats of those persecutors of Stephen, the first martyr. Because Stephen was preaching this new thing, Jesus was a new thing, and he was turning Judaism upside down, and Paul hated the thought of this. And he was on his way to Damascus to throw a few more Christians in jail when Jesus completely upends Paul's hateful little errand by knocking him off his horse with a blinding light from heaven and an ominous voice straight out of the starry night sky. Actually, I have to admit the Bible doesn't tell us about Paul's mighty steed, but that's the way Caravaggio paints it, so it's possible. So, there lies Paul sprawled out on the Damascus road, blind as a bat, and it's a good thing too because if he could see, he'd notice he was staring straight up into the wrong end of his horse. So, to me, Damascus represents that radical reorientation in life God occasionally visits upon us, whether we want it or not, that hard left turn into some unvisited geography. So what are you doing here? Wouldn't you rather be playing golf or reading the New York Times at Starbucks? Why are you here? Maybe it's because you don't have a choice in the matter, right? Maybe it's because you've been struck sightless quite against your will by a blinding light from the sky. 
the light of a life that was lynched and lashed and left for dead, but then turns out to be bursting with the plenitude of creation's very intention. Right? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Don't you understand that I'm the point of your existence? Have you heard this voice and see this light? Aren't you here because before him life was small and you were mean and enemies were legion and the unknown was frightening? But now because of him life is large and you are kind and enemies become friends and the adventure of holiness is what pumps your blood. In my Connecticut congregation, there was a woman whose life work, her God-given vocation, was coming to a successful conclusion because her children were leaving home. She needed to become something new. And so she prayed about it, and God found her at her prayers. And now she drives to the federal penitentiary in Danbury, Connecticut, at least once a month to visit convicted felons and to pray with them if that's what they want. And most of these women in Danbury are incarcerated for drug offenses. Piper Kerman was incarcerated at Danbury and wrote, Orange is the New Black, when she got out. And so if you watch the Netflix series, you know how little my friend from Greenwich has in common with these prisoners. My friend's married to a doctor. Her children grew up to be successful teachers and doctors. She lives a very comfortable existence. And she has almost nothing in common with these women at Danbury except for their common motherhood. She has her maternal love for her children, and so these women can cry on her shoulder after they haven't seen their own children for eight years. I know a guy who purchased all the fresh produce for the largest grocery chain in the Midwest. This was before Walmart and Costco. Do we have Myers stores around here? I haven't seen one, but this guy traveled the world buying millions and millions of dollars worth of perfect bananas from Honduras and oranges the size of volleyballs from California and lush clusters of grapes from Chile for hundreds of stores across seven states. He had a PhD in groceries or something. Now he's retired, and you know what he does now? He scours western Michigan for surplus government cheese and day-old bread from Olive Garden and Idaho potatoes, almost sprouting eyes, but still good, from ShopRite, and puts them in the local food pantry where they end up larding the cupboards of the poor with prolificity. I know a 62-year-old orthopedic surgeon who was so good at knees and ankles that he became the team doctor for the football team at Grand Valley State University in Western Michigan. Four-time national football champions in Division II in the NCAA. He worked for Brian Kelly before Coach Kelly got famous at Notre Dame. He has four NCAA championship rings. He lets me touch them sometimes. And for him, you know, it was a blast tearing down the goalposts after the game with the star quarterback whose ACL he 
repaired just in time, but my doctor friend is retired now. What else are you going to do? So now, a couple times a year at least, he flies to Haiti or El Salvador or Kenya and sets the broken bones of subsistence farmers for free. He's my good friend, but it's hard to stay in touch with someone you can't locate. He met Jesus on his road to Damascus. One last thing, and then I'll quit. It's a beautiful day. This happened a long time ago, but I still remember it because she was such a good friend of mine. It was Christmas Day, and we went to her house for a Christmas dinner. This young woman, my friend, had three passions in life, her hair, her jewelry, and the Wizard of Oz. She was four years old. And that very morning on Christmas, she'd received four dolls, a scarecrow, a tin man, a cowardly lion, and Dorothy. Five, if you count the toto Dorothy had in a basket slung over her arm. These were the most beautiful dolls I had ever seen. The alabaster plastic skin looked like porcelain. Ralph Lauren couldn't drape finer fabric across the shoulders of George Clooney than the clothes these dolls were wearing. They looked a little bit like those American girl dolls that my daughter later fell in love with, just a little smaller. They were dead ringers for Judy Garland, Jack Haley, Bert Lahr, and Ray Bulger. And she was so proud to show us her new dolls, and I picked up the Tin Man and said, I haven't seen the movie for a long time, I said, Cassie, I think this one needed a brain, right? And Cassie scoffed at me. The Tin Man didn't want a brain, he wanted a heart. And so I picked up the Scarecrow and said, what did this one want? She said, that one wanted a brain. And I held up the Cowardly Lion and she said, that one wanted courage. And then I said, why did Dorothy go to see the wizard, Cassie? And without blinking an eye, she said, that one went to have her hair done. <laughs> now, I'd always thought Dorothy went to see the wizard because she was trying to find her way home. But it's all in how you see the movie. You remember this? Dorothy does indeed get her hair done when she gets to the Emerald City. It's in drab pigtails the whole movie until she gets to see the wizard and then it's hanging down in all this brunette glory. And that's the instant, of course, when the cowardly lion gets his mane done up in curls too. Remember? <laughs> My friend is 22 now. She graduates from university this spring. and She wants to go to law school because she wants to work for legal aid. So why are you off to see the wizard? To have your hair done? Are you here for cosmetic purposes? How about this instead? Embrace broken people and show them that they have hearts of gold and brains of more than straw and leonine courage. You can melt wicked witches and befriend fantastic aliens and once you've finished your magical journey to the Emerald City Kansas can never be again as drab as once it was he is 
the voice in the stars, and the light that blinds. Follow him. Because that's what the Damascus stone really means in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.